Good morning, church. Um, I'm Kirsten. I'm one of the ministry leaders for Playtime. Um, we are reading from Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 to 20. If you want to get that in your Bibles ready. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but not for good, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Turngabe Baptist. My name's James. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the joy of opening up God's Word this morning. What a joy it is to gather as God's family. We're a family of God's people, young and old, and it's so great to hear the kids in church. They've gone out to their kids' program. But also, just a reminder to you that we love having kids here. So as parents, if at any stage you do need a room to go with your kids, we do have two rooms out there that you can see everything, you can hear everything crystal clear, and it means you as parents can hear what God's going to say to us today. And so I encourage us today to, um, let's, let's be encouraged by God's Word. We're coming to a... a a big passage, a confronting passage, but this is God's word, so let's ask God to help us now. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your word that gives life. We want to thank you that you've made yourself known to us. You've revealed the Lord Jesus, our need for salvation, the free grace that overflows for us in him. And so, Father, this morning, we pray that our hearts will be stirred today to be zealous and passionate for Jesus, to see our lives transformed by him, to be conformed to him, and to see others' lives transformed by him as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I remember it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon. I took a late lunch break uh, from work that day because I needed to catch up with a young man who was in my Bible study group at that time. And so I worked my lunch break uh, around fixing cars. And so we went out and we had a lunch break at Macca's of all places to go. We shared, a, we shared a food together. But he knew and I knew that this was going to be a difficult conversation because he'd been trying to avoid me for a few weeks because it's one of those... Moments where you have to speak the truth in love. I had to talk with him about where he was headed and the things he was doing on social media and the things he was sharing. And the direction that he was headed and where it was going to go wasn't good. Have you ever had those conversations? Like, I don't know about you, but they're not easy. And you get tired and you get anxious, you get worried. 
I wonder if you ever had conversations where you've had to speak the truth at work as a boss or as a manager and as you pull someone into your room and you need to have that conversation and you plead with them. If this doesn't change, you, you look where you're headed. It's not going to be good. But I wonder as parents, if your parents here and you've got teenage kids or kids that are a little bit older than that, and they're young adults, I wonder, do you know that, that plea where you've got to have a, a chat with your 18-year-old son, father-to-son chat, that mother-to-daughter chat because if they keep heading the direction they're going, it's going to go wayward. And so you plead with them. You plead with them to say, do you realize that the course that you're on and the actions that you're about to take, do you see where it's going to go? And I plead with you. Have you ever had that? You know that feeling of pleading with someone. I wonder, did you notice, did you feel that Paul's pleading here like a, a father with a son, like a mother with a daughter, like talking to a child and he's pleading with them, you're going the wrong way. And if you keep heading this way, it's not going to be good. See, here in these verses of 8 to 20, there's this passionate pastor's plea. We get a glimpse into the heart of this man who's been saved by Jesus, a man who's preached the gospel, seen sinners saved and seen churches planted. And here we have this passionate plea to these churches in Galatia. And he pleads with us as well. And as I share today's passage, as a, one of the pastors here, in a sense, I feel like this is one of my pleas for us. At the same time. But maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe, or maybe you're here, you're just checking out who Jesus is. And you come to today's text and you think, well, why is he pleading against that? Isn't religion, isn't Christianity about you doing more? Isn't it about you have to come to church, you have to do the Ten Commandments? Like, isn't that what religion is about? And yet you're going to, he's pleading for something else. I hope as we look today, you'll see the beauty and the wonder that Christianity isn't like Islam, it's not like Hinduism. It's so different to every other religion in the world. But we'll see why he wants them to turn back. See, why do we have this passionate plead with us? What does he plead with us to do? What? He pleads with us, don't turn back. We've got three points today. The first one is don't turn back. We're gonna, and we're going to work our way through. But the first plea from this passionate pastor to his churches in Galatia is don't turn back back. Did you see that there in verse 9? How is it that you are turning back? Have you ever been, um, have you ever lost focus? You sort of got distracted by little things in life. You know, you get the GPS out and you've got a car full of friends with you. You put the GPS on, you type in the destination, you hop in the car and your friends are talking, you're talking. And so you turn the GPS down so you don't hear the directions because you want to listen to the conversation. And rather than focusing on the GPS, you're focusing on the conversations. And guess what? You end up back where you are. Like you, you turn around, you turn back, you end up not where you're meant to be. And here Paul is saying, you, you've lost your focus, you've turned back. You, you're back to where you once were. Did you notice that? He's, he's saying to them in verse 8, he wants to remind them of who they once were. Have a look at verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He's pleading with them, look back and remember 
who you once were. You once were Gentile pagans who worshipped the goddesses. You worshipped the gods of Rome. You, you worship astrology, zodiac signs. You went to the temple of Zeus. You, there was a mother goddess, Zisamine, who had four heads and ten breasts. You would go and you would worship and sacrifice. You were in spiritual bondage to these idols. And that's what they, they know that's what he's saying. So remember who you once were. And all of us, isn't it good for us to remember what we once were? Now, maybe you are here in this room and... You were caught up in Ouija boards or tarot cards or you were caught up in the darkness of the world and you've been redeemed by Jesus. Or maybe, you know, maybe you didn't do those kind of things, but you were caught up in materialism, caught up in your identity at work, caught up in sex and rock and roll, like, you know, what was it that, was, that you were worshipping to make you happy and feel your worth, to try and earn the favour of the gods? What was it? And he says, remember what you once were, but look at verse 9, but now look what you are. But now that you know God, and it's really interesting the next statement, he says, like, you now know, the, you now know God, and the reason you know God is because he, you're known by him. See, Paul's very clear, he says, you didn't go looking for God. He found you. Or rather, are known by God. This is, this is not just a knowledge thing. This is, this is this word that's in the Old Testament, yada. It's this word that, that flows through in the Greek. It's this idea of relationship. It's deep love of relationship with someone. He knows you intimately. You're his. And so you're known by God. In Christ, you've been set free from these pagan ways. You're freed to worship Christ and Christ alone. And what he's saying is, now, that's, that's so freeing, isn't it? To no longer need to earn the merit of God. You don't need to earn his favour and you never could. Who would want to go back to the work of the demons? Because see, in chapter 4, verse Verse 3, we see that they were killed captive to the elementary spirits, the, the forces, the, the world. That, and he's saying, like, you no longer need to go back to that. Who would want to go back to that when you've been set free by Jesus? That joy and the sweetness that was yours when you first believed the beautiful, freeing gospel of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That he's the king of the world who died in your place as your substitute so that the wrath of God wasn't poured on you but was poured on Christ and the death that you should have died, he died for you. And now because you've trusted him through faith, his righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection is now yours. And you've been forgiven. And you, ha you now have him who's mediating between you and God. He's our mediator. Nothing else. You're in favor with God because of Jesus. Nothing that we have done. And we get to verse 9. Then how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. You're turning back to those weak and miserable, like you've turned back to pagan worship, where you're trying to do these things that earns the favours of the God. He's saying you've gone back. To slavery, not freedom. 
I wonder if you're not here as a Christian, you think, but, but isn't Christianity, how's it freeing? How's it joyful? Or I wonder if you, when you first believe, sometimes you think becoming a Christian, isn't that going to just sort of enslave me? But actually Christianity frees us, doesn't it? It brings us great joy. But there's something actually very astonishing here in verse 10. It's actually quite astonishing what Paul's actually saying. Did you, did you notice it? You're observing special days and months and seasons of the year. That they've gone back to, he's saying, you're, you're, it's like pagan worship. But, did you, but do you notice what he's actually talking about? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. That's the Jewish calendar. They're observing things like the Passover. They're, they're observing things like the Sabbath and, and take, you know, from sunset on Friday through to sun, sunset on Friday through to sunset on Saturday, they have a day off. They're observing the Jewish laws and calendars. Now that's confronting. Because see, what Paul's doing is here, he's equating when you, he's equating that as they go back, as they celebrate and practice those things that earn favour with God, it's pagan worship. It's like Hinduism, it's like Islam, it's just going back. It's demonic. Now that's confronting, isn't it? Saying that you've you're, you're gone to these things to look for that. Now don't hear me wrong here. Like they're, they're, it's from God, but they're using it the wrong way. And he says it's just exactly like those pagan worshippers. What you're doing. Now, can I tell you, that's quite confronting for the 21st century church. Because we're very good at comparing and achieving. Now, we don't ask people to get circumcised. We don't ask people to celebrate the Jubilees and Passover. We don't ask them to do these kind of things. But, but when it comes to thinking about the Mosaic law, when it comes to thinking about those things of the Old Testament, we look at the pagans who practice temple prostitution, tarot cards, astrology, as a means to favour the gods, and we go, that's demonic. And yet we picture upholding the Ten Commandments as a means to favour the love of God, and surely that must please him to merit his favour. We see that as sort of completely different and as okay. But the moment we do that, guess what we've slipped into? Pagan worship. You've gone back to pagan worship where it's what we do to favour God. Do you get his logic here? It's confronting. Some of you may be here today and you're using your attendance at church to merit the favour of God. Because now your attendance becomes the mediator. That's paganism. Because in the ancient world, like... If you're, you're, if you're having trouble having kids, you go to the fertility god and offer a sacrifice to try and earn the favour so that you could have children. If your crops are failing, you would go to the crop, the, you know, the god of the harvest, and you try and intercede and do these sacrifices so that the god would favour you and give you a good harvest. We sometimes think that our good that that we think we know God because of our moral behaviour, 
or our attendance or our incredible singing, our upright behavior. We don't drink, we don't smoke or dance and we use that thinking that God merits our favor with you. See, some of you are coming here today hoping to get something from God. You're hoping that if I come and attend every Sunday, my week will turn out okay. If I come and bring my kids to kids' church, then God will surely favor me and therefore my kids will grow up and follow Jesus. And there will be no suffering for me this week. Surely if I give more money, God's going to give me more money in return. That's pagan idolatry. That's, that's going, it's, it's going, God's going to give me things because I'm incredibly good. Sometimes we think singing in church brings us into the presence of God. No, it doesn't. Jesus does. So that the moment we, we use those things to try and be our intercessories, our, it's, it's not actually the, the, how, how God said, no, no, I've got Jesus for that. It frees you, so frees you so well. If your church attendance is a requirement for you to be happy and feel worthy, well, then it's an idol. If your life group is required so that you can be joyful and happy, it's an idol. Now, if, if your happiness comes from obeying the Ten Commandments so that you're favoured by God, that's idolatry. Now, one commentator said this. He said, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. You see that? Without the gospel, we must without the gospel, we must be under the slavery of an idol. Something has enslaved us to it. Do you see what I mean? Now it might not be church attendance, it might not be music, but it could be a spouse and marriage and a great relationship. They're the ones who are here to, to make you happy and save your life. It could be a job, it could be a career, it could be education. Now, all those things are good, right? They're actually good things to have and to be happy about. But it can't be where you find your ultimate happiness in. Because see, Satan, you know, he wants, he wants lots of things to happen on a Sunday. He wants me not to preach the gospel and preach law. He wants the service leaders to distract us so that we don't, you know, and we make it think about it, it's all about us. Now, often we think that Satan wants to stop us from coming to church. Now, that could be true. But also, sometimes he's actually very happy that you're coming to church. Satan wants you to turn up to church and to think it's going to gain you merit. Do you see? See, for some of you, he, he's actually, he doesn't need to stop you coming from the church. He just wants you to come because... You think that coming through that door merits you some form of favour and salvation with God. See, if you're not someone here who's religious today, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're irreligious, that's actually not as dangerous as someone who's caught up in religion. See? So you can, you can say, I don't love God, I don't want to have anything to do with God. And they know, and you'll know, you don't want anything to do with God. You know you're not in a relationship with God. You know, and you don't want it and you don't care, right? You know that you haven't got the merit of God and you're not worried about it. But boy, it's dangerous for the religious person, though. 
it's a major danger because they think that their religious behaviour makes them closer to God than other people. Do you see? Religion is dangerous because it makes you think you're closer than other people in this room to God. But the past, passionate pastor's plea here is with all of us is, is don't turn back. Know your freedom in Jesus, that he's the mediator. Don't turn back. Live out your freedom in the glorious truth of the gospel that you are no longer under law. You're no longer under the, the, the demonic. You're no longer under those things. You've been set free. Christ is enough. For there is one God and one mediator, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And Jesus says to every one of us, he says, come to me all who are wearied and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I wonder if some of you are here today and you're just tired and you're exhausted because you're trying to live up to earning the merit and the favour of God. Or maybe you're, you've caused yourself to be enslaved because you've turned back from the freedom that is found in the gospel to, to slipping into moralism and law. Maybe you've slipped into it. Whereas at first the gospel was just beautiful. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But now slowly Jesus plus a couple of other things. And it makes you tired because you have to live up to so much and therefore you can never be a failure. Whereas the gospel tells us we're actually all failures. But maybe you're actually here today and you are enslaved and you have never known this freedom in Christ. Maybe you're here and you're feeling like, yeah, I am treading that treadmill. I'm, I'm trying to do so much and I feel like I could never earn the merit and the favour of the God who created the universe. You never can. See, it's either by divine achievement or it's by human achievement. And I can tell you human achievement never works. See, in Christ, Christ has done it all for you. Turn to him and trust in the one who says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, I can give you absolute rest. See, Paul, he wants to plead with us. He wants to plead, don't turn back to those old ways. Remember what you've been freed from and what you have now. And so therefore, he pleads with us, live out our freedom with joy. He wants us to live our freedom out with joy. See, these, these people at Galatia, these sort of agitators, they're treating Paul differently, aren't they? You know, how have I become your enemy? Look, and then we get to verse 12. It says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters. So they're, they're treating him differently. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I become like you. You did me no wrong, as you know. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. They welcomed him beautifully when he first came, but now they're treating him differently. And he pleads with them, when I came to you, be like me. See, when he came to him, what he's saying is, when I came to you, the gospel shaped my life. This freedom, you saw that I lived in freedom when I came to you because I came to you as a Jew who's been saved by grace and I put all that Jewiness to the side. Culturally, do you see what I'm saying? He didn't come with it, but now you want to go back to it? 
See, that's what missionaries do. We, we go into different countries and we don't bring our Western culture. We come with the pure gospel and preach the gospel. And say, He's saying, I live this way. You've seen me live out this gospel. You've seen me live out what it means to be free in Jesus. You saw me every day and how this gospel of Christ, that Jesus plus nothing is everything. He's saying, you've seen how I live that out. See, what Paul... What is Paul saying when he says, become like me? It sounds arrogant. It's not. He's not saying, become like me in my moral behavior. He's not saying, look at me and be, you know, I'm prideful the way I act. No, no. He's saying, look to me and how I came to you as a failure, weak, and I came with the gospel. And I live out the freedom of that gospel in Christ. I live out that freedom that I have from the Mosaic law. He said, I wasn't under Mosaic law when I came to you. And in chapter 3, verse 27, he says, remember the freedom I have. He's just told them in chapter 3, verse 27, that they're clothed in Christ. He says, you're clothed in Christ. See, clothing equals identity. Have you noticed that? Even, even here in, in Western Sydney, what you wear tells me something about who you are and what your interests are. The clothes you wear is an identity thing. That's why all of us, right, we go to the shops and we buy a certain fashion clothing. Why? Because we want a certain identity. See, clothes, what you wear is an identity. It tells us who you are. And what you cherish, you know, you, you have this, you know, as you have kids, they say, oh, I want to wear this, dad, I want to buy this. Why? Because it's the coolest thing in and they feel like they won't fit in because they won't have the right identity. See, clothing, being clothed is an identity statement. It's a clothing is an identity marker. And what Paul says is you're clothed in Christ. Okay, yeah, you're dressed in your, your latest fashion, but no, no, do you realize you're actually clothed in Christ? That means that Christ's righteousness is yours, that Christ's death is yours, and that Christ's resurrection is yours. You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying everything that is Christ is now yours because of your clothing in Christ. God sees you. He doesn't see you. He sees Christ that you're clothed in. How freeing is that? Therefore, it means as Christians, live out that freedom. It means that, you know what, you're probably going to stuff up before the day's out. There's going to be a chance today that you're going to sin, right? We do that. And if you're clothed in Christ, it means that God the Father is not standing over you with a judge and going, oh, I'm so disappointed and I'm going to judge you. No, the Father stands over you and he sees Christ, the one who who fulfilled the law, he sees Christ's righteousness. But as a father, at the same time, he also knows that you're adopted. See, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, we're reminded that when set, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive, this is one of the most beautiful doctrines, the adoption to sonship. J.I. Packer says, he says, he says, the doctrine of justification is incredible and we need to know it. But do you know what I think is even better than the doctrine of justification? It's adoption. Because adoption is you're now legally God. So you're, you're adopted. They find you. They pay for you. They have the right credentials and they adopt you. Now you're a son and daughter. And he says, live in that freedom of your adoption. 
One pastor, uh, he talks about adoption like this. He says, imagine you're about to adopt an eight-year-old boy. Right? And so you go to the adoption agency. It's just about time to, you know, you've signed the paperwork, you've paid the money, you know, you've done all that. And yet sat down. And they share with you about the child that you're about to adopt. We've just got to tell you a few things. The last three houses he's been in, he's burnt down. The father's a schizophrenic and he's a killer. He's killed people. Mum's addicted to drugs and was on drugs when she gave birth to, to this child. He's been out of every school. He's been expelled and he is a terror. I just want to let you know that. Now, as those who are sitting there, what are you going to be thinking in that moment when you hear those things? What's going to happen to our house when we bring that child home? What's going to be the pain of bringing that child up as a teenager? The tears and the anxious. What's it going to look like for us? What's going to happen to our other kids in the family? What's going to happen? Is that what would go through your mind? And the gospel tells us that that's you. You're that eight-year-old child whom God the Father adopted through his son. Live out that freedom with joy. God found us, he chose us, he paid for us through Jesus, so now we are adopted. What joy fills our heart knowing the love of the Father. Live out our freedom with joy. See, it's, 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 it's an encouragement. He's pleading with them. But at the same time as it's an encouragement, it's a comfort, but it's also a reality. He's going to have a real reality because suffering is going to come our way when we live out this gospel. See, the gospel actually offends people because by nature, all of us want to be achievers. We want to have earned our favor with people. That's why the gospel offends us because it's nothing in our hand we bring. And so speaking the truth in love is going to bring suffering. See, Paul has to have a plea with him and he's speaking the truth in love to these churches of Galatia and he's suffering. But as he went there, he suffered as well. Did you notice that when he first came there? You know, when I was there, I, I, I was in great illness and yet the joy that overfilled you as I shared the gospel with you. Look at verse 15, where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. He's saying their behavior's changed. Because see, the gospel is offensive to the religious person because they're trying to make a name by upholding their life. Now verse 15, it's, it's an interesting one. You know, commentators will say, oh, obviously there's something wrong with Paul's eyes. Well, I think we're missing the point. It's hyperbole. Because see, in the ancient world, one of the most valuable possessions to have were the eye. And so what he's saying is they just would have done anything for Paul. They would have given anything for him. But now he's an enemy because he's speaking the truth in love. These other people have come in and they've distracted them. See, there's great joy in the gospel, but religion kills joy. And so Paul, he pleads as a pastor's plea. He pleads with us, don't turn back, live out our freedom with joy. And finally, he wants us to be passionate for Jesus. Here's the litmus test. Here's the diagnosis tool for you to think about, hey, how am I living? Have I gone back? Am I stuck in religion? 
Here's the litmus test. It's that little strip that you put in your pool and it comes back and tells you what the chlorine level is and what the pH level is. Here is, is. Here's a way for you to diagnose your own heart here this morning as this pastor pleads with us. And you know how to diagnose it is? is where is your zeal and where is your passion? What is it for? Is it for your own pride or is it for the sake of the glory of Jesus? He wants us to be passionate for Jesus. Who you make much of reveals who you worship. And Paul, did you notice he has a passion to see lives transformed by Jesus? A passion to see Jesus transform others. There's a major contrast between Paul and these men and women who are infiltrating and saying you must go back and it's Jesus plus these things. See, they're leaders who are codependent. Do you know what I mean? Like they're codependent on the people of these churches liking them. They're codependent on the people of these churches in praising them, right? See, they don't have joy and happiness, and so they need these people to support them. They want the accolades. They need the accolades because they're codependent. They need these churches to praise them. And so we read in verse 70, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Now, it's fine to be zealous, right? It's good to be zealous for things, right? Provided that the purpose is good for it, right? There is good things to be passionate about. And to be so always not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, these false teachers want to glorify themselves. It exposes the evil motives of these false teachers. They are saying these things for their own means and their own end game, their own wicked end game. Jesus plus nothing is everything. They say, no, 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 it's Jesus. Yeah, Jesus saves, right? But you need to do these things. And sadly, you can find that on the internet and even on TV where men get up and women get up and say, Jesus saves you. But to be truly blessed, you better start handing some money over to our ministry and God will surely bless you. That's Jesus plus something. See, Paul says, no, no, you'll know their motives by what they're trying to achieve. Are they wanting the fame for themselves? Are they wanting the pride for themselves? But what we see is there's a huge contrast between these people and Paul. Did you notice that? They want it for themselves, but Paul, he's like in childbirth. He just wants to, he's like back there going, I just want you to be free. Oh, my passion is not for me and my, and my zeal is not for, for me and my name. No, my passion is for them to be formed, to be like Christ. May we be passionate for that as well. Individually passionate for us to be formed in Christ, but individually passionate for others to be formed to be like Christ for the glory of Christ. And so here's the question what are you passionate about? Because, see, the passion here for these people that are against Paul, it's not for the gospel, it's for their own means. And so you only have to ask one question is who wants the glory and where does the glory go? That's how you spot a false teacher. 
The false teacher wants the glory for themselves, but Paul, he never wants it. He wants it for Christ. Where is your zeal for Christ? Is it for Christ or is it for slavery? I've sat in church meetings, you know, in plenty of churches. I've sat in leadership meetings in churches. And I've seen leaders get more passionate about a budget and the savings account for the sake of their own image and the legacy that they want to leave behind. And when it comes to the passion of transformed lives by Jesus, they go quiet. I want to ask those of us here who are leaders here, as you lead, what are you actually zealous for? Zealous for the glory of Jesus or zealous to clothe yourself in adoration and praise? As a church, as we seek to appoint men and women into key leadership roles, as we, as we seek to, to, to vote and to pray for them, you need to ask the question, what are they actually passionate about? Are they passionate about Jesus' name and his kingdom or their kingdom and their name? Are they happy about keeping you happy and comfortable or about lifting high the name of Jesus and willing to speak the truth in love? Or are they making sure everyone is comfortable, unoffended, warm and fuzzy in their stomachs or are they about going, no, I'm in Jesus I need Jesus as much as you need Jesus. My identity is clothed in Christ and so I'm willing to have this hard conversation with you now and speak the truth in love. Because see, when a leader falls into the trap of wanting to tickle the ears of everyone, they've turned to paganism. Because they're trying to earn favour by tickling everyone's ears. Is the goal your own pride and your own furtherment? Or is the goal to have people formed to be like Christ? This is a pastor's passionate plea that wants them to know Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to desire Jesus and to rest in Jesus. There is one question that I think it stumps religious people. You just ask them how are they delighting in Jesus over the last week. Because to delight in Jesus, you have to realise you're a failure. But if you're living religion, you're the one who's earning it. So how are you delighting in Jesus this last week? I, I love that question. And can I be honest with you, some weeks it's easy to answer and there's other weeks when it's not. And can I tell you the weeks when it's hard to answer, it's a week when I've slipped into religion. There's times, you know, as a leader, I've been zealous for the glory of Jesus and there's times when I've utterly been unaware and I've been just zealous for my own furtherment. But Paul, he pleads with us, he said, no, no, be zealous for the right things. And Paul says, I'm just perplexed at this, these people. He says, I'm perplexed, what are you doing? And as he says that, I, I sit here and I read this passage and as I read it this week, I just go, I yearn with Paul with this. As a pastor, one of the pastors here at this church, I have the sense, I go, I feel your cry here, Paul. I don't want you to turn back. I want us to live out our freedom with joy and I want us to be passionate for Jesus. It's the stuff I actually lose sleep over when the gospel gets dropped. 
It's the stuff, that, oh, well, I think it's the stuff that gives me grey hairs. It makes me look a lot older than what I, like I look way older than what I really am. But you know what? I wouldn't trade it for the world for the sake of the gospel. Because there is nowhere else that we can be saved. There is no other name. See, their passion and their zeal isn't for the gospel, but for the advancement and elevation of themselves. So I'll leave this question with you. Have you drifted? If so, return your passion to the right place. The gospel is free. A gospel frees us from being codependent. The gospel frees us from the need of other people's approval. It frees us from everything and it frees us to praise King Jesus. And the more we dive deeper into the beauty and the wonder of the gospel and what Christ has done, the more we will be zealous for Christ and his glory. The pastors, please don't turn. Don't turn back to slavery. Live out your freedom with joy and be people who are passionate and zealous for the glory of Jesus. I'm going to close with these words from Revelation 7. I hope that for us we will have this passion and this zeal for what the book of Revelation picks for us. And he says in Revelation chapter 7, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the reason that those people, from Jews and Gentiles, from every place of the earth, isn't because of religion, it's because of the Lamb who has washed them clean. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, may this be a, a, a passion for us to look forward to where we say praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day of seeing the multitudes from every nation, every tribe, every people group, every skin color, people, men and women, boys and girls of such a great multitude that have been rescued by the Lamb, who have been redeemed, who have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Sons and daughters of the Most High King. Father, don't let us turn back to our old ways. But help us to live out in the 21st century our freedom with great joy and to have great passion to see each of us formed and conformed to the likeness of Christ, we pray. Amen.